0: It's hyperbole, it's provocation to talk about the idea of the architect's skills being wasted on building, but really what it's trying to, to get to is this idea that there has to be alternative forms of practice, that there's still going to be the architect-like character that does make real buildings and puts them into the world, but this isn't the core of the profession anymore.
1: Welcome to ArchNet Sessions 1 to 1. I'm Paul Petrunya, and this week, November 30th, 2015, I'm joined by connect writer Nicholas Carodi as we talk to Liam Young, founder of the Urban Futures Think Tank, Tomorrow's Thoughts today, and co-director of the nomadic design research studio, Unknown Fields Division. When he's not traveling to exotic locations around the world, Young splits his time between London, where he runs a course at the Architectural Association, and Los Angeles, where he's developing a new Master of Arts program in fiction and entertainment, as well as leading a studio at SciArc. Young, who started his career as a more traditional designer in Australia, now focuses on representing the strange and often disturbing effects of our globalized and technology. -centric culture. Alongside Kate Davies, he leads designers to the edges of the world, from the Chernobyl Exclusion zone to the Bolivian Amazon, tracing the global supply chain. According to Young, the architect's skill set exceeds designing buildings and he advocates for expanding the purview of the discipline. For him, this involves extreme mobility. He arrived at our studio, suitcase in hand, having just returned from filming a sci-fi in Detroit on his way to catch a flight to London. A few days later, he was scheduled to return to Los Angeles to deliver a talk on the urbanism of Kim Kardashian. All right, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Liam Young.
2: So a few months ago, on our Connect contributor reposted an interview you did, I think, with Tank Magazine, where you said... I think an architect's skills are completely wasted on making buildings, but you don't see it as a weakening of the profession, but a strengthening. And it it created a big debate on our website. Uh, I was wondering if you could kind of talk about that idea and how that relates to your own experience of moving from a traditional architecture background to your practice now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I started out, um, I studied in Australia. I worked for some fairly traditional architects, you know, a small little residential architect in Australia, and then moving on to spending time in the star architect system with people like Zaha and working on these mega um, iconic projects around the world. And I was just increasingly frustrated with uh, the time scale that most of these projects transpire across and also their real inability to engage with the contemporary moment of the city, right? To a large extent, those kind of traditional architectural projects Really, quite marginalized, in terms of the forces that shape the contemporary city, so in turn the the role of the architect also has become increasingly marginalized, so we 've been looking for different forms of practice and alternative forms of projects that try and situate the architect back within the systems and forces of change that make our contemporary spatial experience, and for the most part, that exists beyond the physical spectrum, beyond the act of making physical buildings right so when i it's, it's, it's hyperbole, it's provocation to talk about the idea of the architect's skills being wasted on building. But really what it's trying to, to get to is this idea that there has to be alternative forms of practice, that there's still going to be the architect-like character that does make real buildings and puts them into the world. But this isn't the core of the profession anymore, right? Like this is something that has become much more of a craft industry, a boutique world Open to a few people that have the budgets in order to commission an architect to make their projects. And if we constantly educate and train our students to think that this is the only way that an architect can operate, if these are the only forms of practice that we legitimize as a profession, then we're totally dead and um, destined to the annals of irrelevancy. Um, so, as, as an educator, I think it's my duty to try and talk about different ways that we can make a living in this profession, right? Because I do think that an architectural education is one of the most extraordinary that still exists in the world. And I think the things that we talk about and the ideas that we put out into the world really critical and totally important. But the vehicle through which those ideas are disseminated and the context in which those ideas are deployed need to change. So how would you define the architect of today, considering that
1: the skills that architecture traditionally is employed by architects is limited? What makes this new breed of architect an architect just as much as the traditional architect?
0: Yeah, I mean, what's what's extraordinary is that we spend seven or eight years studying to be an architect, maybe another couple of years trying to get registered. You can be a surgeon faster than you can be an architect, right? These skills end up being... Destined to, you know, design a beach house for some rich benefactor. Like I think that what we're trained in through that process is the ability to abstract, problem solve, to to put unlike ideas together into a um, continuous narrative, to engage with the world spatially. And I see that there's interesting places where the architect can move into alternative disciplines where they can still act as the architect, but that the architect in politics, the architect as strategist, the architect as storyteller, and the architect as documentary maker, all of these territories can are places where we can work in the way that we're trained to work. We can think strategically, we can think about the way that people relate to one another within space, but... It doesn't have to happen around the built form as a as a core object that everything is is located within and um, structured around. You know, it can happen within systems, engineered flows, networks. It can happen within the cycles and systems of political debate, town planning issues. All of these things, architects, I think, can play really strategic roles within. Uh, but we very rarely have access to these industries in a in a meaningful way.
2: One of the main components of your practice is the design studio you lead with Kate Davies uh, through the AA Unknown Fields division. Can you talk about how you deploy these skills and how you teach them to your students on the field?
0: Yeah, I mean, a big part of what Kate and I do with Unknown Fields is we go out into the world and and try to understand how it operates, right? Like, we're interested in this idea that you know architects have traditionally been involved in questions of site and place. You know, we design a building for a particular location. Um, what we're interested in talking about in Unknown Fields is the idea that that site or place has totally changed in the same way that I was describing the city and the forces that shape the city as being very different to when the architect traditionally operated within the medium of the building. So too is this idea of site and place radically evolved where you can't think about a site just by its immediate adjacencies anymore, a site is a network condition, right so we are interested in thinking about London or reimagining London as a city, and the way that we do that is by traveling around the world to the different and dispersed landscapes that that, that city sets in motion, and in turn the, the landscapes that shape our experience of that city right So to think about London, it's no longer sufficient to just look at that single point on a map, but you have to look at this atomized system of landscapes that are scattered all around the world. Energy landscapes, resource landscapes, landscapes of production. These are all the conditions that actually make up the contemporary city. So as architects, we need to go out into the world and find these conditions and report back. And and that's really about expanding an idea of place. And then in turn, we can think about how the architectural project evolves in the context of that new idea of site. Where architectural projects now need to be much more scenarios, networks, conditions that transpire across time scales as opposed to buildings as singular objects. So, with students, we take students almost like an artist, nomadic artist residency, out into the world to experience these sites. And then they make work which is about engaging with the trajectories that we travel. It's about engaging with these conditions of complexity and multiplicity. They make work that isn't building orientated, but is the illustration of scenarios.
2: Uh, maybe as an example,
0: we could talk about your most recent
2: trip, which as a, uh, in the interest of disclosure, I joined last summer to Bolivia and Chile, and we were exploring lithium. Can you explain the place of that landscape within kind of the global supply chain as you see it?
0: Yeah, I mean, we were interested in, e- Elon Musk just declared this you know, latest provocation that the world is going to be entirely solar powered um, in the next 10, 15 years. And it just so happens that he've, he's got the battery that he's built to, to make that reality possible. And there's a whole discourse that, that is generated around that about green energy, um, energy futures. And we're interested in what the story behind those futures might be. So when Elon Musk puts on the screen um, in front of an audience of, of tech head nerds and green energy utopians, this diagram that shows how many batteries need to be made in order for this future to become a reality, what he doesn't show is how much lithium is required to produce those batteries. He doesn't show the landscapes behind the scenes of that diagram. So we traveled to the lithium triangle, Chile, Bolivia, Argentina as well, but we didn't get out to there to actually see where this future is going to be made, the landscapes that that are going to construct this, this energy future that we're all going to be kind of marching towards. And it's an extraordinary condition. In order for Elon Musk really to realize that dream, he basically needs to buy Bolivia, right? So Bolivia has 70% of the world's lithium resources, and they're currently trapped under one of the most extraordinary landscapes on the planet, the de Uni, which is this vast expanse of pristine, flat, white salt, it's so big and flat that it's used by um, uh, satellites as calibration points. It's an extraordinary condition. And literally it is contained within it, the future of energy on this planet. So we thought it was critical for us to go out in there to explore that condition, to explore that infrastructure, to explore that landscape, a landscape very much on the point of disappearance. Um, A landscape that's going to power our devices, laptops, phones, cars, houses, everything of our near future.
1: So what did you discover?
0: Well, it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary as a condition. It's Really is trying. Bolivia as a country is trying to imagine the role that these developing resource-rich nations might play in these kind of futures. So, traditional, the traditional model that we've seen around the world, from Madagascar to Australia, is that large-scale multinationals own and operate these mines with local labour forces. The money follows the refinery process. So, in the traditional case of lithium from Chile, there's a multinational that. that would run the mine, and they'd take out the lithium brine as a raw material, and then it would go to Korea and Japan, where it's refined further into battery-grade lithium, and then turn into batteries, and then those batteries are sold back to the developing nations at extraordinary high costs. So, generally, the money in these resource nations gets dispersed and atomized across the world. What Bolivia is trying to do, which is quite amazing as a condition, is figure out a way to nationalize that industry and keep the money internally, and... They have one of the world's only indigenous presidents. That's really a critical part in doing that. So we visited a series of pilot plants where they're setting up this process and trying to create an entirely new industry in the developing nation, which is all orientated around building a new kind of future for their country. And it really is a totally different way of thinking about resources and wealth distribution. But it's a totally different way of thinking about nation building. So it's an amazing condition. But we also see that. It does also require that future of the nation a whole lot of compromises on these precious landscapes that have indigenous heritage wrapped up within them. And you know what we get into is a really interesting conversation about the sacrifices we're willing to make in the service of our shining, gleaming technological future. Is that better than tar sands in the Yukon? You know, the destruction of this extraordinary landscape in Bolivia? I don't know. I mean, I think, that, but I think. What we're trying to do is generate that discussion and debate because it's not something which is a part of the traditional conversation of green energy. You know, there's no such thing as green energy. It's just a, a myth. It's really about a system of horrible compromises and which ones we're willing to make and which ones we aren't. And that's what we try and do is, is through storytelling, fiction and narrative is illustrate those conditions that exist and frame them in a way that an audience can start to engage with them and make up their own minds.
2: This framing you're talking about seems like kind of like the bulk of the architectural aspect or where you and Kate and your studio are positioned as designers or architects. Can you give us some examples about the types of outputs that have come out of the trip?
0: Yeah, I mean, we're we're in this idea of the architect as storyteller in this case, or the architect as documentarian. You know, we really think that there's tremendous power in narration to make explicit some of the systems which are so fundamental in shaping this world, but that are kind of either exist in plain sight, that are so familiar, they cease to become visible, or that are so large that it's hard to look at them with any kind of focus. So we think that Through narrating them, through this idea of system storytelling, we can kind of reveal the invisible and present it to an audience in a way that they can start to connect with. So we operate in the medium of the documentary or somewhere between the documentary and the fiction where we imbue these contexts, these landscapes, these systems and these networks with uh, emotive potential. I, I use the phrase data dramatization. You know, which is very different from data visualization, which is the currency we use to visualize networks and these kind of systems. Data dramatization involves the idea of trying to imbue them with emotional content so that an audience connects them in a different way. It's not just information, but it's much more visceral, much more immediate, and you're forced to take a position.
1: Would you so, consider that performance art?
0: In some form. I mean, it, it, sometimes it takes, this, it takes the form of, of, of film. Sometimes it takes the form of you know, I do these storytelling performances as, as, as lectures. Um, sometimes it takes the form of almost news journalism essays that, um, that narrate our own journey in these contexts as, as sort of first-person narratives of discovery. You know, it takes the form of graphic novels. We're developing a graphic novel about the militarized landscapes of the of Midwest United States. Sometimes it's animations. Sometimes it's, I guess, all, all forms that fiction might take, really. So in this particular case, we had um, a journalist from New Scientist come with us on the trip, and that's evolved into a series of stories. We had um, Marshmallow Laser Feast, who, uh, some media artists based in London, who brought out some 360 cameras that we put on board a flock of drones, and we were flying them in various sites to create a VR documentary, because i are really interested in the capacity of VR to create these empathetic relationships with conditions. So we're developing a um, a VR doc with a couple of other filmmakers, um, Jim DeMuth and Posey Dixon, who also came out with us. And that should drop sometime in 2016. So the work we do takes a whole lot of different forms, but at its core is this idea of reframing these conditions of complexity through narrative. Um, and that's about trying to connect an audience to these issues that, that we think are, are really critical. These kind of products also require
2: a lot of pragmatic technical they come with a long, a lot of pragmatic difficulties to get vr technology out to the amazon for example is really really hard can you tell us a bit about how you and that's something that not a regular architecture professor would necessarily have to deal with in leading a studio can you tell me about how you guys plan these trips and the logistics that goes into them
0: yeah i mean as you saw firsthand um these trips can sometimes be logistic nightmares. And you do end up like, yeah, we, you know, traveled for three days on a canoe up the Amazon River with a um, massive cargo of weird drones and cameras. We had a, a, you know, a floating drone repair shop at the back of the boat. I mean, you know, I, I, I still think the nature of putting these trips together is an act of architecture, right? Like we have to put a network of landscapes together in a sequence. We have to stitch together a narrative that starts to connect them and we have to put in place a network of collaborators, um, interesting people for us to talk to in order to illustrate and, and elucidate these stories that we think are really important to tell. And I think that they're really architectural acts, you know, like constructing narrative and stories out of a network of places and spaces. So a yeah, big part of what Kate and I do is that logistics enterprise of putting these trips together and it uh, it has created these really interesting relationships to these to these landscapes. We we you know we or we don't profess to go to these places as you know as noble westerners trying to solve the problems of, of people out there that have been dealing with them for years and years. We're there for two weeks at a time generally. But what we what we try and do is just put practitioners in the same room as all these people and listen to their stories. And then our role is really to document those stories and, and project them out into a world using these various different media. So and that's the nature of the practice, really. And I think it's a really architectural and spatial one. So unknown fields is
2: just one aspect of your practice. Uh, you also run a think tank called Tomorrow's Slots Today. Can you give us some background about what that is?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if unknown if field is sort of this nomadic research division that goes out into the world and, and identifies certain trends and markers of, of things that are shaping contemporary futures, then tomorrow's sorts of day is a speculative design practice that takes those trends, exaggerates them, and projects them into, into possible futures. So we use the techniques from film, fiction, and animation to narrate new kinds of stories or counter narratives that come out of these landscapes. So we're just working on my film at the moment, which is based in what we call the Detroit Special Economic Zone, which is the near future smart city of Detroit that's owned and operated by um, China. Which really comes out of um, an interest and in observations that that um, that we saw on our previous expedition through China, where the economic model of um, Chinese cities, these special economic zones, that are now being set up around the world gets exported back to Detroit, a city that was destroyed as industry was outsourced and, and moved back to China, which is now the place that's outsourcing back to the cheap labor markets of, of the US. And it comes out of you know observations where we see Chinese specular economic zones emerging in Eastern Europe, in Africa, the irony being that actually the, the, the cheapest labor market for China now may be Detroit. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit, bit more about that
2: movie I saw on uh, feature in The Atlantic that talked about it involving la- uh, LIDAR shielding clothing.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the narrative of that film is, is really looking at what subcultures emerge in the context of new technologies, right? So we're interested in all of these trends that we see playing out in the world that we document to some extent in unknown fields. They generate new forms of community, new, new sorts of relationships. And we're interested in the way that you can't distinguish technology from culture. So we think is really important act of the architect is actually start to sketch out out these new communities and look at how they operate. So the film in Detroit is, over the course of one evening, looking at a group of teenagers that by day work in one of the factories and by night look for spaces within the smart city, within these systems of ubiquitous surveillance where they can find new forms of agency, right? So it's riffing off the emergence of rave culture in the UK in the 90s. You know, where does the warehouse rave scene start to emerge in the context of the smart city when everything is mapped, everything is digitized? In the world of big data, where are the spaces that exist outside of the gaze of the city for people to do what they want to do? Um, So the idea of 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 the project is that these spaces where the city can't see now exist within the spectrums of machine vision, no longer visible light. So these spaces exist within the grain of the central city, but these groups adorn themselves in LiDAR camouflage costume, which disguises themselves from the future of photography, which is all based in laser scanning, LiDAR scanning. They wear anti-facial recognition makeup and, um, and hairstyles, which means they dissolve in the eyes of the systems of CCTV, which are looking for facial features, they hack driverless taxis to, to go to areas of the cities that are being totally ne- neglected and don't appear on the traditional maps that people use to navigate. So it's all about finding the gaps and spaces within these new technologies where new forms of agency can potentially exist. Are these technologies that you
2: guys are inventing for the film entirely speculative? Or would, for example, these shiny fabrics actually protect one against these. Yeah, I mean,
0: all, all these materials have been developed to be totally legitimate and believable. I mean, that's the, the great thing about certain forms of speculative fiction, right? We're not interested in science fiction and shiny spaceship skies and laser beams and lightsabers. And that's a form of escapist fantasy, right? We're interested in fiction that people can connect with, they can identify with, they can imagine so themselves within. And that's why we talk about being somewhere between the documentary and the fiction. So, it's important for us that all these technologies do actually work, right? They're, they're all prototypes. They're not just total fantasies. So, you know, we have done a lot of research into the way that LiDAR operates in order to develop these textiles with a series of silk weavers in London that actually do deflect and disrupt the LiDAR scans in really interesting ways. We were collaborating with Adam Harvey. Who's a designer in New York who has developed CV Dazzle, this anti-facial recognition makeup and hairstyles that actually does work within the constraints of um, facial recognition algorithms that they stand. So it's really important that all of this work is grounded in the realities of of the technology of the day, and also the realities of um, the sites and contexts in which we're working. And that's why unknown fields is a critical part of the practice as well is because it really is about going out to see how the world operates in some form, right? And, and this idea of exaggerating the present or extrapolating from these things that we find and discover is a deliberate strategy so that all of the work that we do as architects isn't, you know, pure entertainment, but it's actually critical fictions that, that mean something that can operate within the world with a degree of um, traction. And I think a part of that is that they have to be connected to the world as it stands.
1: Is there an emerging technology that you're particularly fascinated
0: with that
1: may be informing the work that you're doing?
0: Uh, I mean, I think we're really interested in the way that the network is shaping the city. I mean, it's not an emerging technology. It's not like the latest hoverboard, which is coming out or something. But what we're only just on the edge of understanding is what the ubiquitous network means for us as spatial practitioners, right? Like, what does a city mean? What does a border mean? Um, what does a citizen mean in the context of this network, which connects people in really unique and interesting ways? You know, what does that mean for the architect, I think, is is a really critical and urgent question, where we no longer think of um, suburbs, places, and sites in terms that we're used to, and, you know, the physical constraints of what of what makes them up. But it's all about network connections. It's all about virtual sites and landscapes. Um, It's all about technology as a mediator through which we understand the world. I think that's something that all architects should start to be considering. And and it's something that also totally is changing the nature of the profession.
1: As an academic, do you see that influence in architectural education these days in schools?
0: No, not enough. I I, I mean, depends on the school, right? There, There still is this idea that Students are going to study architecture. We're going to talk to them about how buildings work, how they put together. We can have um, really complex discourses around the formal language of those particular architectural projects, and then they're going to go out into the world and get a job in an office, work their way up, become associate, become a director, buy a house, car, a cat, and a dog, or they're going to go out and start their own offices and win competitions and take over the world. And those patterns of career path are totally limited now. I mean c- certainly they were when I first started teaching which is um, you know the, um, around the time of the financial crash where the architect in Italy was working behind a counter in McDonald's to a certain extent you know we've recovered but
1: those those architects that stayed in the profession after the recession
0: yeah, have recovered. Yeah, true. Um, so on. Yeah, But I really think that you know that career path and those models are, are really quite marginalized, you know that the world's still going to need this type of practitioner. In the same way, the world still needs Louis Vuitton handbags, but they're just going to be reduced to an increasingly decadent and irrelevant luxury. So it's much more interesting to think about new forms of education that can actually talk about some of these issues. And and to a large extent, it's not happening nearly enough. And I think it's it's actually, you know, a real act of negligence on our behalf of, of, of if we're interested in running schools and teaching within schools that we're not engaging with these new forms of what architecture can be, right? Architectures which mightn't have a physical footprint at all. Architectures that operate within the depth of the screen. Architectures that operate atomized across the planet that exists within the network or architecture that has multiple sites, one foot in a city like LA, but another that stretches all the way back to a resource landscape in the Congo. You know, I think these are the new conditions of what make space today. And architects fundamentally have to be engaging in those forms of space and creating and designing within them and critiquing them and trying to understand what it is that they mean.
2: Central to that, I guess, would be the formation of an economic model that could support these new and alternative architecture practices. Could you foresee that happening? And how would that kind of operate? I mean, so much of architecture is just defined by this really antiquated relationship between a client and the architect. So how could new economic models be formed around these practices?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a totally interesting and critical question. Like one of my dream projects is to to do um, an architectural conference, which is totally just about business models, right? Like it sounds totally boring, but actually I think there's tremendous invention in how we all figure out ways to make livings outside of the traditional client-based model. Actually, maybe it's just the circles I operate in, I'm sure it is, but the vast majority of architects that I know don't make buildings as their primary concern, right? They they self-initiate projects, they work outside the traditional service-based industry, and they look for alternative forms of funding their work or they co-opt business models from other practices and they work within other disciplines parasitically. I mean, I think that's really interesting. You know, like when I talk about the dissolution of the term architect, what I'm really talking about is the way that the architects should distribute themselves in a whole series of aligned and associated disciplines. And again, I don't think that's about weakening who it is that we are as a professional body. I think it's about finding much more powerful ways that we can engage with the world and the forces of change in that world. You know. So, you know, I think I can see architects on the you know, the payroll of big tech companies, you know, embedded within those systems, architects on public service payrolls that are embedded in government or in town planning offices, you know, architects that, that operate within advertising agencies or in developer offices or aligned to those, you know, all of those business models from these type of worlds I think we should be engaging with somehow, right? And not just hoping the phone will ring and some guy's gonna call us and get us to design his museum in Dubai. I
1: think it's totally pointless. I love that idea about the uh, business model conference. I think the diversification of the architectural practice business model could actually be what could make sense to a lot of people of this new emerging type of architectural practice. I think a lot of people struggle with the idea of, of being an architect and doing anything but designing buildings. But if we were to look at different ways of monetizing the skills and experience of an architect, I think it, it could be more easily seen that that the the industry is more diverse than it appears.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think like how do you do that though, right? Like there's this bizarre little course that exists in every architectural school on the planet, which is called in various ways you know, professional practice or like you know professional training or something, and it's this crappy little part of the program that. Students copy off their essays and, and exams from from past years. They treat it like a chore that they never have to turn up to. It's normally run by someone who no one knows the name of that's been in their practice for the last 40 years or something. But this should be the most vibrant and exciting experimental place of the architecture school, right? Like we shouldn't dismiss it and go, oh, I've got to do the contract law subject now. Oh dear, I can't wait to get back to studio. It should be totally experimental and we should sure. be really inventing what the architect could be in that space. You know? It's
1: interesting, uh, you know, architects inherently are very creative people, but they tend to not be creative at all when it comes to tr- uh, issues
0: like business. Yeah, we also it's totally self it's a discipline that is an amazingly self-censorship, you know, mm-hmm. where, we, where we define more than anyone what's in and what's without, you know. Like, no one cares what an architect really does. Like, it, we're, we're a really kind of anonymous profession to, to most people outside of the constraints of the, this podcast. But we're the ones that actually control it and constrain it and decide what legitimate forms of practice is and what legitimate forms of a business is. I and mean, that's what we teach. And that's, that's just crazy. You know? I think it's much more interesting to bring people from outside the world of traditional architecture into a school to give a lecture and things like that, to talk about alternative forms of practice. And then it's the educator's role to think about the ways that we can design student experience so that they can actually develop a fluency in some of those territories and, and actually start to define new paths that they may take when they leave the institution. You know, I think all these things are absolute matters of urgency. Yeah. And you know, it also means that we might actually make decent livings now as well. Like, you know, It's also potentially a really selfish endeavor to try and figure out a way to do cool projects and get paid to do them as opposed to architecture being treated much like a hobby.
1: Well, I'm guessing that the majority of architects out there are spending their time doing what they're not meant to be doing. You know, I think that most architects that I've met are have a high level of skill or understanding in areas that, that their work does not take advantage of and it seems like those areas are where they can re
2: reinvent their their business yeah it seems like one of the kind of constant expressions from architects is this fear that architecture is under threat from anything or the, the fear that architecture is losing its autonomy and i think that a lot of people see these new models these new practices as part of that i don't know if you've felt that if you've
0: perceived that uh, kind of the, the, typical... the the horse is already bolted like you know, you know the the profession is already totally marginalized to the point of almost irrelevance to be honest right like i mean look around at the city you know that the the forces of change in that city uh, have have passed us by where you know that the the systems that used to shape our experience you know large kind of fixed forms of infrastructure Public squares and spaces, buildings as singular objects, you know, uh, they're not the things that define our contemporary experience anymore. You know, the way that um, we navigate through technologies in our pocket, Uh, proximity to a Wi-Fi network or a decent phone signal is much more important than the nature of um, uh, the form of a physical building, you know. You know that that conversation has already passed, like whether we realize it or not the the architect in its traditional sense has already lost its um its traction and its capacity to effect change, so we're just you know the the, the the world of technology is has just is moving so much faster than we are, so I think that's a really interesting kind of project, like how can architects position themselves within the line of technology transfer much more further along than what we are so you know, I th- I think any conversation about how the profession is dissolving into these allied fields is, is really dated. That it already has, and I think the the task now is to figure out how we can gain much more agency in these fields that we've all dispersed into. Um, how we can kind of be really recognizable as architectural practitioners in these worlds, as opposed to the guy that used to be an architect that's now um, working in government. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. At the same time, so many of the kind of the traditional signifiers of architecture kind of get thrown out with this new technologically uh, framed and, and enabled world uh, ideas of divisions between outside and inside. So where does kind of how, would, how does architecture kind of continue form a cont- continuity into today?
0: Well, I still think all of these questions that, that were fundamental to the traditional forms of architecture are still totally relevant. But it just the medium through which those conditions play out have changed, right? You know, there's still a question of boundary conditions between inside and outside, between one country and another country, jurisdictions. But these things no longer necessarily defined by the, the bricks and mortar of, of a physical wall, but might be defined by um, network connections, broadband speeds, who has tech- certain technologies, who doesn't, what sites one's connected to. And you know, I think t- to look with an architect's eye, to look spatially at these kind of conditions of technology in the same way that we did a city or a building before, I think is really important. So I don't think that the nature of the questions that we're interested in has changed. I just think the medium in which those questions are being answered by the world has. And that's why I think that, you know, we need to be exploring these different forms of the profession. Also, we need to be engaging with different types of collaborators, network engineers, software designers, all of these sorts of guys become just as critical as the structural engineer was uh, back when we were, you know, making buildings and designing bridges. You know, the, the, the nature of infrastructure is, has changed. Architects always were about plugging into infrastructure in various forms. Now that infrastructure is fiber optic cables, not freeway networks. And we need to be just as catty about connecting into those systems as we once were the hard systems that used to make cities. At the same time,
2: cities like Los Angeles also have massive housing shortages, um, and that's a phenomenon that repeats in many globalized cities or alpha cities. How do you see, it? I mean, can you talk to
0: that? Are there still needs to be, obviously, architects who do build. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think, you know, there, there will be the architect as builder as one form of the practice, but it's just not just the architect as builder, you know. So I should, I should clarify my, my statement, you know, the architect's or skills are wasted on just making buildings, right? Mm. But equally, in terms of conditions like housing shortages, I don't know if the architect in the traditional form is the best guy to to fill that role. You know, like what does it mean for an architect to be embedded within um, a developer agency or an architect to be designing the urban rules and the town planning regulations, which mean that any private builder or um, owner or owner builder of a house can create something on their own terms within a set of constraints that ensure some positive condition for that, for that area or suburb in the first place. You know, like if we design the strategies through which architecture emerges, as opposed to the architect designing the bespoke house over and over again, I think that's potentially a much more dexterous way that we can operate in the networked world. So it still is a concern with built form, but it just might be much more engaged in it at a strategic level. Than a material reality
1: can you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing at CyArk, the teacher
0: yeah i mean I, a big part of what we do is is running studios in in different institutions around the world sci seemed like a really exciting place to start to operate within because in a city like nla connected into the industry that that really makes this city famous it seemed like a school that was more open than many to these different forms of practice that we're talking about. So we're setting up to launch in fall of 2016 a new post-professional school within SCIARC, which has a number of different programs and courses that will be run, you know, architecture and urbanism, architecture and landscape, architecture and development, architecture and theory. And specifically, I'm setting up a new program which is looking at architecture and narrative fiction, architecture and entertainment, um, connecting into the industry in this city. Which is trying to continue to a large extent um, the speculative work that we've been doing in Tomorrow's Thoughts Today and the critical research that we've been doing in unknown fields within the context of the extraordinary industry relationships that we can develop in, in this city.
1: Does this program have a name? Not yet, not yet. So It's loosely
0: loosely called architecture and entertainment. My shorthand for it is um, fear and wonder, which is obviously taking on the description of science fiction as as, as, um, narratives of fear and wonder, which is talking about the way that speculative fiction both encapsulates our hopes and dreams for the world of the future, but also cautionary tales of worlds that we should protect ourselves from from walking into. But it's really going to be about the way that the architect as storyteller could operate within the world. So we're going to be working in documentary. We're going to be working in the worlds of um, fiction and film. We're going to be thinking about terms and projects like world building, you know, where we construct and work with studio industry here in the city and construct and imagine speculative worlds through which new narratives start to play out. So it should be a really in- interesting and exciting new program which is going to try and equip its students with the tools the knowledge, and the dexterity to operate as practitioners within these worlds of fiction, film, storytelling, documentary. So hopefully it's it's a program that will do the sorts of things that we've been talking about across the last half hour, trying to develop educational models that look to train different forms of architects that can go out into the world and operate within different disciplines. So for
1: students that are listening to this, when can they apply for this program and what what are the uh prerequisites for uh we do
0: activities. a full launch in in january um okay. it's a post-professional degree so you oh. have to have a um a degree in an allied profession before you come into the to the school but um it's going to be inclusive in its model so we're interested in people from a whole series of different backgrounds that that might want to come into this world and and use it as a platform through which to start to develop work and and a career path into these different types of practice that we've been talking about um, but yeah we, we do a hard launch in in january so before
1: we, we finish today, there's a question that we like to ask our interviewers at the end. Actually, our, our co-host, Ken, who's not here today, started doing this, and it's, uh, we, we like it quite a bit. Could you tell us what you're reading and what you're listening to these days? <laughs>
0: um, to be honest, what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm watching at the moment is... Um, crap movies on flight on airlines. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was something um, more evolved than that. Um, what am I looking at? What we're, what we're doing at the moment is, is starting to plan out our next unknown fields expedition, which is going behind the scenes of the fashion industry. And we're doing an expedition through Bangladesh and India, um, looking at cotton fields, looking at um, textile mills, garment production. So. We're doing a lot of investigation reading around um, these economies of production right now. So we're trying to think about the way that clothing production, in the same way we thought about the supply chains of technology objects in, in China, the way that our desires and um, the consumption in a city like LA or London fuels and and um, creates these new supply chains in, in India and Bangladesh. So we're reading a lot of economic stories and lots of readings around Business models and supply chain models of fashion brands, things like that, to try and understand how these systems work. Um, we were just looking at this extraordinary um, study that's been done of Zara, the fashion brand. Do you, do you guys have that in the, mm-hmm. in the States? Yeah. Uh, the way that fast fashion works, Zara's business model is based around being able to deliver to the high street stores garments that have come off the runway faster than the brands that are designing the stuff on the runway themselves. And the way they're doing it is. They design almost immediately straight after a runway show comes out. They, they do a series of designed garments. They then are cut in Bangladesh um, and India. The, the actual fabrics are chosen, the, the patterns are cut out. Then they're put in containers and put on board a ship. And then on that ship, everything is sewn together. So they have factories in the cargo ships traveling across the oceans so by the time they get to the port of Dover in London or Los Angeles or Oakland, the garments have been made. So they cut out the, the, the shipping time from their, their supply chain and they co-opt the infrastructure of the global shipping network with garment production, which is an extraordinary way of rethinking how we might operate within this networked world. And that's how, you know, they get, they get stuff on the shelves so quickly. So we've been really interested in all of these different forms of business model and, and thinking about how that might change the nature of the design profession, you know, how we can actually design within these globalized networks rather than just you know, study them and, and be at one end of them. Think, or just
2: how to design a more livable shipping container. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I uh, read somewhere that right after 9-11, Zara, like, it took like two or three days to replace all of the stock in their New York stores with only all black clothing. It's just like immediate. Yeah, I mean,
0: like, wow, it, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's it, it that's to I mean, Zara do it purely based on a model of efficiency and economics, right? But what I think is really interesting is a, is a series of speculative projects is to explore how, as designers, we might co-opt that network in really interesting ways, right? Like, what does it mean to redesign or reimagine, um, you know, this this Apple MacBook that's sitting in front of us and design it? with parameters that aren't about you know, the, the, the seamless aluminium edge, how thin it is, how it will read in a byline on a tech blog. What if we designed it based on supply chain that brought it into being? In a way, they, they already are, but the conditions and the parameters that, that supply chain is reimagined under is based on labour costs, um, material availability. What if it was based on other kinds of conditions? that wasn't just about speed, but was about the positive distribution of wealth or about um, the engagement with certain material economies, uh, I think that would be really interesting to develop a new aesthetic language for objects of the world that are actually based in the conditions of their production. Mm. So I think you know, all the stuff we're interested in at the moment is trying to flesh out those observations and starting to develop much more knowledge about them so that we can start to deploy them as designers.
1: And so you have an event coming up tomorrow at the Met in New York. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, a big part of our practice is um, traveling around the world, preaching the word. Um, uh, So as I I, I mentioned, I I do um, uh, lots of lectures, but I I try and avoid the, the shit I done lecture, which most architects do, you know, the PowerPoint presentation, here's a competition I didn't win, here's a chair I designed, here's a Renaissance painting that inspired this building that I also didn't get to build. I'm interested in the architect is performer. The architect is storyteller. So I do these lectures, like storytelling performances, where I narrate projects that we've made and, and places that we've been into new stories that try and connect an audience in new ways to these conditions and try and reveal them and make them explicit in ways that they weren't before. So we're doing one of these performances at the Met on uh, on Friday. We're doing another one in here in LA at Syc on Wednesday, uh, the twenty eighth of October, which will be a three screen. Multimedia assault on the senses, where I do live sound mixing and and really narrate a story. Um, In this case, the one I've been working on recently is called um, City Everywhere. Kim Kardashian in the dark side of the screen, where me and a fictional Kim Kardashian go on a journey through a fictional city, which is stitched together from landscapes that we visited with unknown fields across the last few years and a series of speculative projects that I've developed with Tomorrow's Thoughts a Day that come out of those landscapes. And they're stitched together to create this idea of city everywhere, which is really trying to interrogate this, this new model of site and place that we've been talking about that's distributed across the planet. And Kim Kardashian seems to me to be the iconic figure of this new networked world. It's me and Kim going on, go on a wild tour.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I have to go to that. Yeah, it'll be fun. Um, I, mean, I really think like I I'm I really think Kim Kardashian is this um encapsulated in in her is everything we need to know about this new world and relationships of technology. Cuz Kim just like the buildings we design and and the people that we are isn't just the physical makeup of her herself, right? It's not just the flesh that we call Kim. It's the media presence that she generates. You know, Kim is this person that has two feet planted in the real world, but she casts this shadow across the digital spectrum, across Instagram, across Twitter, across Facebook, across our screens. And this, to understand Kim, to understand people like us, to understand the buildings that we design in the cities we inhabit, you have to look not just at the physicality of what makes her up, you have to look at the network that she sets in motion. So I use Kim as this icon of today, Kim Kardashian as the um, key architectural figure. Um, it's probably a better answer to your question, what, what am I reading lately? Um, Kim Kardashian's selfie book oh, yeah. is, the, uh, is the most recent thing I've bought from my Amazon wish list. I don't know if anyone's seen this totally I decadent haven't. bullshit book, but it says so much about who we are that this thing was brought into the world. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Do you watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians too? Religiously. <laughs> yeah. Religiously. Religiously. I'm starting to shift. I'm, I'm starting to get more interested in some of the other Kardashians now. I think they're doing more interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, Chloe. Chloe. Like, wow. Talk about a road to self destruction. Totally yeah. <laughs> um, fascinating. And DFY, yeah, it's um, one of the great things about being in the city is just being closer to the Kardashians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only the worlds they set in motion. Yeah. <laughs> That's a dystopian point to end on. Goodness.
2: Yeah. It's <laughs> a good one. Yeah.
0: Definitely. Well, thanks so much for, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to come in.
1: Thanks for listening to our one-to-one interview with Liam Young. Danilo Voinoff edits the podcast and Matt Skillings composed the music. Myself and Amelia taylor Hawkberg are the producers of one-to-one. You can learn more about this week's interview in our show notes and listen to a new episode every Monday. As a reminder, we are a separate podcast from the Archonnect Sessions, our weekly news podcast. So to keep getting the latest one-to-one interviews, make sure to subscribe. To keep up with podcasting news from Archonnect, follow us on Twitter through at ArchSessions, that's A-R-C-H, Sessions, or with hashtag Archonnect Sessions. And let us know what you think by rating us on iTunes. You can also email us through connect at archonnect.com. Thanks again for listening.